Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so I'm John Gaynor, and I've been, um, had the uh, gift of being able to talk about uh, meditation for, um, I, I guess it's about 15 years now, since 2002. So, uh, 17, yeah, 15 years. And um, in that time, the, the main stream, of course, of talking and teaching meditation is meditation. And meditation, I don't know what you all feel about it, what it is. Probably you don't really analyze it so much. You uh, fall into a way of doing meditation that you've learned from uh, people you've met or from books or <coughs> from your own experience. Um, but uh, I was lucky enough to fall into Dogen's meditation really from an early uh, time in 1996 when I started meditation. So right from the beginning I came across Dogen. And uh, he has sort of been my teacher really. Um, which is an odd thing to say because he lived from 1200 to 1250, 1253 in Japan in a, you know, spoke a different language, lived a different culture. And um, it's a very odd thing to say that you have any relationship with somebody who's dead and from a different world, really. But uh, with Dogen, I do really feel that um, over time he has been actually speaking and helping and helping with how to express the importance of this meditation practice. And I, I don't want you to think that what I'm going to be talking about is just about meditation uh, in 13th century Japan. It's really about meditation now. And um, it's, it's not anything to do with religion. It's not anything to do with philosophy. It's uh, a personal experience of meditation that I'm talking about here. So don't feel that I'm um, particularly pushing any beliefs or anything like that, please. Um, <clears throat> what I, uh, just to sort of give you an idea of what I'm going to do, um, I thought I'd outline what I'm going to, my sort of talk as it were. So uh, there are five sections to the talk. And the uh, first one is Dogen's life before he wrote the Fukanza Zenji, which is the thing that you've got there. You don't need to really look at that, but please take it away with you, this uh, universally recommended instructions for Zazen. Well worth uh, as much time as you've got to spend on it. Only two pages, uh, but this uh, writing is a beautiful writing and very full of um, uh, help for our meditation practice. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about his life, some features of his life, Dogen, from 1200 to 1227. 1227 he wrote his Fukan so he was 27 years old, but it came from his own extraordinary experience of um, his meditation. The second thing is I just want to go on to Fukanza Zenji itself. 
and what that is, what that means, what is Buganza Zenji, you know, it's Japanese, medieval Japanese, what does that mean? Uh, third thing, I'd like to look at the why of Zazen, the why of meditation in this Fukan Zazenji. And then the how, how do you meditate, which is also set out in the Fukan Zazenji. And then the what, what exactly is it that meditation is opening us up to. So uh, that, that's a, a brief outline of what stages I'm hoping to go through. I'm not going to read the Fukanza Zenji through to you. I'm just going to take a few parts out, out of it to look at. Because uh, although it's only two pages, it's actually very, very dense. It's got a lot uh, to it. And we wouldn't get through it in a few days, let alone half an hour. So um, <clears throat> I just uh, would like to pick and choose a bit, I'm afraid. So Dogen's life before um, he wrote the Fukan Zazenji in 1227, um, he was, uh, there were certain features of his life which really stand out. So he was born in 1200. Uh, we're not quite sure who his father was. He was born in the Japanese court. And his mother was um, a courtesan. And um, he had, because he was born in the court, he had very, very good um, prospects. Basically, he was uh, going to be looked after, and if he uh, was able, he would be uh, brought into the government system and um, adopted by the crown prince. But uh, things happened to stop that path, really. He was an extremely brilliant man, Dogen. He was able to speak um, Japanese and Chinese when he was two years old. Um, I'm lucky enough to be a grandfather and have an 18-month uh, granddaughter, 19 months, and she doesn't say a word. So <laughs> Dogen was well ahead of her. Um, <clears throat> but um, he, he was very bright, and uh, at the age of three, his father is suspected father died and he was his uncle became his um, sponsor um, and but he, he'd lost his father and then uh, uh, worse still at the age of eight he'd lost his mother uh, his mother died and um, was cremated and during the course of this cremation he was there at the age of eight and he experienced a very um, extraordinary and deep experience age of eight, which was that all things are constantly changing, passing away, re, uh, being reborn and passing away. And he had this very uh, deep experience which meant that all his subsequent life he was very, very aware of how everything is constantly changing. And this became a very um, important aspect of how he saw things. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of come back to that in, as we go through the Fukanza Zenji. Um, then, uh, at the age of 12, his uncle wanted him to go into the court, and he refused to go into the court. He said, I want to 
just study this question of constant change and why everything is changing all the time and uh, be a monk. And so he became a monk at the age of 12 and he would have done regular meditation as part of being a monk. And then at about uh, the age of 23, um, he and his uh, then abbot decided to go to China uh, from Japan. It's a good joke, but where? Um, <laughs> So he, um, he and his abbot set off for China because China was the real center of uh, Zen at this time, Zen Buddhism. Uh, although uh, Japan had a strong Zen Buddhist um, group all around in Japan, it was thought that the best place, the real sort of Oxford and Cambridge of Zen Buddhism was in China. So off uh, they went at the age of 23, and um, they spent a year going around the east coast of China, going to different monasteries, and eventually came to a monastery where Dogen really felt that this was the place for him because of the abbot there, and he got on extremely well with his abbot, Qian Tong, and um, he spent two to three years with Tian Tong, um, and in that time had a very amazing uh, enlightenment experience. And it was because of this great experience that he had that um, he came back to Japan in 1227, uh, left his teacher, went back to Japan, really wanting to share the importance of meditation because he'd broken through in his meditation to something which was completely new and completely different to anything that he'd heard about before. And I think this is why Dogen is really a bit of a revolutionary in the history of meditation. I'm not sure anybody has written a history of meditation, but uh, you will all know that meditation comes in many shapes and many forms and many sizes, and it's extremely confusing to know which uh, meditation to follow. Um, but there is no doubt that Dogen did have some kind of very big breakthrough from the length of time that he'd been meditating. So he'd been meditating a lot from the age of 12 to the age of 26, 27, when he had this experience. Um, so, full of enthusiasm, he came back to Japan to um, express what he'd discovered. And he sat down and wrote the Fukan Zazenji in the kind of um, light of what he'd experienced. And so that's the light that I'd ask you to kind of feel as you read this Fukan Zazenji, if ever you find time to read it. Um, <clears throat> But what uh, was the Fukanda Zenji? Th this um, title, Fukanda Zenji, I think on your paper you've got universally recommended instructions for Zazen. And um, another translation is universal promotion of the principles of Zazen. 
So, of course, because this was written um, uh, a long time ago, we have very many translations of this, and it's difficult to pick the perfect translation because a lot of what Dogen was saying was talking about something which most people haven't experienced. So they, it's difficult to get um, the right translation because he used words which, or he would use um, uh, letters or characters um, which uh, he wrote, wrote it in, in Chinese even though he was Japanese, but he used Chinese characters which couldn't really be translated or still can't be that easily because he was trying to get a meaning into them which wasn't a standard meaning. Uh, he was trying to express a world which is not normally expressible. So, uh, as a result, translation is a big problem with Dogen. But this translation that, I, that you've got, I think, is okay. Um, and the translation of Fukan Zazenji, the title, is Universally Recommended Instructions for Zazen. Now, Zazen is just Japanese for sitting meditation. So it's just, um, you know, it uh, could be universally recommended instructions for meditatio. You know, it's for meditation, it's for what, what we should do um, to really get the most from our meditation. And it's a bit more than that too. Uh, the, this other translation, Universal Promotion of the Principles of Zazen, indicates that it, another, trans, another meaning here is he's telling us what the main principles of this meditation are. You know, these principles are really important. And um, he's also, it's also possible to translate it as uh, universally recommended instructions for doing Zazen. In other words, you should, everybody should do Zazen. Everybody should sit in meditation. So he felt so strongly after this experience that everybody should do Zazen. And um, during his life, you know, from 1227 to uh, 1253, when he was in Japan, he did go to Kamakura, which was the then um, capital of the government in Japan, and try to persuade them to introduce Zazen meditation as a uh, requirement that everybody in the country should, should sit in meditation, which is interesting. He didn't succeed, let's say. But he did actually try to, to, to do that. So this is um, his universal recommendation to do Zazen, and at the same time explaining the why, how, and what of meditation. So let's look at the why of meditation. And the why, in the why, the why is contained actually in the first paragraph. Uh, in, of, of this, but you, you don't need to look, but it's, it's just in the first paragraph that I'm looking at. In fact, the first half of the first paragraph. Um, and he um, sets out in this opening paragraph four fundamental laws, which are what he has discovered through his meditation. And he sets out uh, four rhetorical questions for each of those laws. 
Um, and I just want to actually uh, go through those with you because they're so important. So this, in a sense, is, is Dogen's contribution to the development of, um, of meditation. Coming up with these four principles and four rhetorical questions. <clears throat> the first uh, fundamental law is the way, which are the opening words, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. And by a way here, he's not talking about a direction or a path or anything like that. It's, um, it's really more the essence. Uh, the way comes from Tao, which was uh, a deeply um, sort of understood word in China uh, in his time, the Tao or the Tao. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. This phrase, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading, is getting at uh, what he, is his expression, very simply, of what he was experiencing through his deep sitting. And I'd like to just summarize it as this. It's a kind of energy, it's a real living energy. Uh, it's absolutely one, there is no uh, separation whatsoever. Um, so none of us here are separate in any way. We seem to be, we look as though we are, but in reality, in this reality of deep um, uh, meditation, there is no separation. There is unconditional love. There is no um, uh, possibility of uh, not loving. It is completely one unconditional love without condition, that is. So it makes no difference um, who or what we're talking about. It could be a snake, an ant, um, a tree, a flower, whatever it is, there's unconditional love and absolute equality. So there's no um, judging, no, no saying that one thing's better than another. The ant and the snake, and you and I, are all equal, absolutely equal. There's no um, way of saying that one is better or worse than the other. So you can see that what uh, this sentence, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading, is doing is, is really radical. It's really radical to what we're used to. This absolute oneness, this unconditional love and absolute equality are not, we, we see it, we, we promote it even. Um, we have laws to promote equality. Um, but we don't uh, really live it. And this is what um, uh, Dogen was wanting to, us to really get. So the first um, principle is this oneness this energy, this living energy, dynamic energy. The second principle is the true vehicle is self-sufficient. So this is the third, there's the way is originally perfect and all-pervading, and there's a question about that. Then the second principle, the true vehicle is self-sufficient. 
And uh, another translation is utterly free and untrammeled. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word, but free and unfettered, unhindered. And the true vehicle here that we're talking about is this constant change. This is really this uh, experience of Dogen of this constant dynamic change. Everything is changing all the time. Um, and because it's constantly changing, it's able to be completely free and creative. So what comes up with this is, is absolute freedom and creativity. And this is what he was coming, feeling from his, his experiencing from his meditation. So this is the second, um, if you like, uh, ingredient in this reality that um, he has discovered. The third fundamental law, he says here, is the whole body is free from dust. The whole body is free from dust. And this is um, uh, getting at the very long established and traditional um, characteristic that um, Buddhist meditators have discovered for many years, which is emptiness, this discovery of absolute emptiness, where there are no barriers whatsoever. And this um, uh, experience of everything being absolutely empty, free from dust, you know, free from anything at all, no barriers, nothing that you can touch or taste or feel. This is, uh, has been a bit of a, has been a wonderful discovery in Buddhism uh, and its meditation practice, but also a bit of a, become a bit of a burden too, because people get stuck in this uh, discovery of emptiness and uh, can't really get out of it in back into, easily back into our everyday existence. But what comes with this emptiness, which is what Dogen was uh, looking at, was the infinite possibilities. So this, because of this emptiness, it's possible to have um, endless, endless possibilities. And we, um, we spend a lot of our time um, closing down on possibilities and limiting everything to what we can feel and taste and touch quite naturally. But this experience in meditation that Dogen had was is opening, is throwing the whole, um, the whole universe open, completely open, and there are no, uh, there's nothing that's not possible. Everything is possible, and we often get surprised by the uh, extraordinary things that happen, but we shouldn't be. This is the world of constant, infinite possibilities really all being there. The fourth uh, law that he states is, it is never apart from this very place. It is never apart from this very place. And um, he's really talking here about, you know, this very place here where we are. There's no separation of this very place where we are in time or space or cause, causation. He's, he's stripping away, there's, there's nothing apart from us here now, including Dogen, who was many years ago, including your great-great-grandparents, including 
somebody that you know and love and has died. They are right here now. There's no separation of time or space or causation. This is uh, his fourth law. It's never apart from this very place. Now, you can't normally feel this. Sometimes we do feel it, but you can't normally feel this. The only way you can feel this is through this meditation practice. This is, uh, I'm just outlining, you know, his fundamental laws, which are very, very wide and radical. Um, after each of these <coughs> four kind of laws, he puts in a question, which um, is a question, is a sort of double question. In one sense, it's a question saying how, you know, what's the point of doing anything? And on the other hand, it's, there's every point in doing this. So I'll, I'll try and help you to see what I'm getting at. <clears throat> so the first law, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading. The question he asks is, <clears throat> how could the way depend on practice and realization? How could this perfect, all-pervading way, which doesn't need any help, how could um, that depend on practice and realization? I mean, what's the point of practice? So practice is doing the doing of meditation, and realization is the realizing of this uh, extraordinary world that is governed by these four laws. Um, it happens, this way is already, already originally perfect, so why, why do we meditate? What's the point of meditating? So that's his question in the real sense, you know, a question which he had up until 1227, or 1226, when he had this experience. But, it's, but at the same time, it's also a rhetorical question. He's saying, we do actually need to practice, we do actually need to realization in order for this way to happen, which is an extraordinary thing to, um, to say. So in other words, we're not, but the fact that we sit in meditation is absolutely vital. We, sh we must have people sitting in meditation, as many as possible, but at least one. Um, because this is to harmonize, to harmonize this one, to harmonize, if we can, if one person is harmonizing this uh, experience of Dogen's, then we all are because of this oneness. Um, and uh, he refers uh, to, Dogen refers to this, you know, taking the, the, the famous Shakyamuni Buddha as somebody who's um, sat and sat for uh, many, many years, and um, other great ancestors who sat and sat. And you can say that their sitting is helping us now. But, we have to continue to um, harmonize. We have to continue to do this sitting. And to the extent we don't do this sitting, then I'm afraid we have disharmony and disease, and we have wars, and we have poverty, and we have um, breakdowns in our society. We have great anger. We have great separation. All of this 
is this dis-ease comes up um, if we're not if we're not sitting, if we're not in uh, meditating. So he says, how could the way to uh, depend on practice and realization? Absolutely, it does. We really have to have to sit. So that's his uh, first question. The second question is in relation to constant change. You know, the true vehicle is self-sufficient, utterly free, and untraveled. Everything's changing the whole time. It does it its own way. Why? What can we do about that? We can't do anything about it. It's happening. Everything is changing. We're changing. You know, one second we're happy, the next second we're not happy. One second we're hungry, the next second we're not. You know, everything's always changing. Every cell in our body, every cell in this desk, everything is changing constantly. How can we have any effect on that? And again, um, he says, absolutely, we do, because we have to flow. We have to go with this change. We have to flow with this change. We have to not stick to anything, not try and hold ourselves in any position. We have to let ourselves go. This is really important. So what need is there for concentrated effort? We have to use concentrated effort in order to um, to move, to let go, to not stick. We have to have this concentrated effort. And in a sense, this um, is the most important, and it was for, him, for Dogen, because um, it causes so much suffering. If we, it's really change, this constant change, that brings about our suffering, because we try to hold on to something, or we try to push away something that's happening, this changing situation that's always around us. And it's that that brings us to suffering. Uh, traditionally in the Buddhist way, we say that um, you know, the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, the cause of suffering is desire. Well, that behind that desire, is almost always, I would say always actually, this, behind this desire there is this wish to um, stop this constant change or change the constant change in a way that helps us or to, to adjust the constant change, to go against the flow. So this really is important from the point of view of suffering. So we need to have this concentrated effort, both for ourselves and for everyone, that we should go with the change, the constant change. That doesn't mean that you can't change anything yourself, because of course you can. It just means that you have to go with it, you have to harmonize with it. Um, the third question is, who could believe in a means to brush it clean? This is in relation to the whole body is free from dust. The whole body is empty, there's nothing but emptiness. What need is, uh, uh, who could believe in a means to brush it clean? And this um, means to brush it clean, you know, if there's nothing, why do you need to clean anything? Because there's nothing there. But at the same time, Dogen's saying there is absolute need this means to brush it clean and the need for sitting in meditation. This meditation helps us to drop away ourself. That's why we 
really ultimately meditate. We drop away ourselves, drop away body and mind. And this is absolutely why we have to um, feel our way into this emptiness, which then leads us into this uh, great constant change and um, unconditional oneness and love. And then the fourth question uh, is, what is the use of traveling around to practice? So you'll remember that uh, the fourth principle was, um, it is never apart from this very place. And then he asked the question, what is the use of traveling around to practice? Because we do, we all go around uh, you know, to retreats here and retreats there and talks here and talks there. Why are we doing that? And um, in one sense, no point, but in another sense, this is what Dogen's saying, it's absolutely vital that we travel around to practice, but not travel around in the sense of geographically and spatially and um, in time, but in our meditation. We travel around in our meditation. We discover and explore this extraordinary reality that Dogen discovered. He's wanting us all to find the same place. I'm, I'm reminded of um, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know whether you know the story of that, where these children uh, climb into a wardrobe and fall out of the back of it into another world. And this is exactly the uh, what meditation is helping us to do. It's a cupboard. We get into this meditation cupboard and we fall out of the back into this beautiful world which um, is, uh, I'm glad to say, more Aslan than witch. Um, but um, in order to get into the cupboard you have to drop the witch and find Aslan, drop the separate self and find this extraordinary uh, Aslan. Yeah. Okay, so um, that is the why of Zazen. Now the how of Zazen, I just want to pick out two things, uh, two phrases really, which uh, again, Dogen in his, at his most um, radical. Um, the first is in the third first point is in the third paragraph when he says learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. This is in your meditation. So you're not looking out in your meditation, you're looking in. Body and mind, so that's your body and your mind of themselves will drop away and your original face which is this extraordinary reality will manifest. So the first rule I reckon for from Dogen is which he got from his teacher actually and which was the rule which enabled him to have this big experience was drop away body and mind of self and other. Drop away body and mind of self and other. He was sitting um, late one night along with all his fellow monks 
and the monk next to him started nodding off and probably snoring a bit because he was a bit tired. And uh, the teacher, Chan Tong, came up behind him and said, what are you doing? I don't want you to fall asleep. I want you to drop away body and mind of self and other. And this cut straight into Dogen, who was sitting next to um, the chap who was falling off. And he had this very big experience as he dropped away body and mind of self and other. So that's dropping away of everything. You drop away your body, you drop away your mind, drop away of self, drop away other. There's no, nothing, 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 nothing. This is the experience of going into this emptiness. But then beyond this emptiness, going into this uh, oneness and constant change. So main point is drop away body and mind and self and other. Now that's not, you know, we've just been sitting very nicely for 20 minutes. It was lovely and Henrietta led us and we had Marin, Maranatha as the possible word that we could be thinking of. This is a very good um, word to use. And uh, in Zen, we also use a word uh, very commonly, uh, uh, mu, just mu. Not Maranatha, but mu. But these are exactly the same um, ways of reducing our um, processing down to the minimum, so that we're not doing anything at all. We're really um, awake, aware, alert, alive, but not actively thinking. And this takes me to the second um, point, uh, which is one, two, three, four, the fifth paragraph. He says, uh, Settle into steady, immovable sitting. Think of not thinking. <coughs> not thinking. What kind of thinking is that? Non-thinking. This is the essential art of Zazen. And it's this non-thinking which is the essence of Dogen's meditation. So you, if you can drop away, as a kind of concept, drop away body and mind and self and other, but then as a reality in your sitting, non-thinking is what you're aiming for. No thinking whatsoever. That doesn't prevent you sort of still having a practice of Mu or a Maranatha or a Jesus prayer or whatever it may be um, to get you to this point. But eventually everything drops away. This is non-thinking, absolutely non-thinking. So this is uh, what... Um, Dogen is saying is a how of, of meditation. <clears throat> then there's the, um, the what of meditation. And um, I just take you to the kind of, um, I'm not sure, I've got a slightly different uh, sheet here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. To the end of the seventh paragraph. Um, he says, they must represent conduct beyond seeing and hearing. Are they not a standard prior to knowledge and views? This is where 
you've, you've, you've just gone through this non-thinking stage and you break into this, what I call a mind of the foreknowing, where you're, there is no knowing and this is where this world is to be found. And um, this is the what of Zazen, the what of meditation. This is discovering uh, a whole new um, world beyond the meditation cupboard wardrobe. This is a whole world, and this is the most exciting part of what Dogen is talking about. Um, he, <coughs> he's really talking about breaking through into this mind of the foreknowing. Um, <coughs> he then, uh, at the very end, he says, um, the treasure store will open of itself and you may enjoy it freely. And this is what he's talking about, this treasure store. This is the, the most, uh, the last line he finishes with, the treasure store will open of itself and you may enjoy it freely. And this treasure store is um, potentially, I believe, uh, the saving of our human race, actually. Um, if you can get through, and, and this takes quite a lot of sitting, this is a difficulty, that you have to do quite a lot of sitting to, you have to have a lot of time in which you can really concentrate on uh, letting yourself go and um, dropping away and just finding this. Once you, once, you know, meditation is a strange thing, it's, it's, but it's not so strange. It's just like maybe skiing. You know, when you ski once a year for a week, you, you reach a certain level of skiing, uh, which is okay. But then you say, well, maybe I'll go for two weeks. And you discover that you make a huge difference to your skiing ability. You become much better at skiing. And as a result, you can do you know, more turns and fall over less and things like that. Um, and then if you go on a sort of long holiday of a take a sabbatical for three months and ski for three months, you become really very, very good at skiing. And you can take on all sorts of conditions. And um, you can see that by practice, you get better. Same with meditation. The more you do it, the, more you, the better you get at it. There's no doubt about it. And you can break through into this whole treasure store which Dogen is talking about. And um, to, well, the reason why I think this is so important, this is the, uh, a list I made of just the thing, type of things in this treasure store that you can, you can explore. You can, you can discover it and then explore it. So these are just some of the things. Love, unconditional love, absolute equality, endless creativity, infinite possibilities and diversity, freedom of suffering, one mind communication, mind of the foreknowing, gratitude, joy, happiness, peace and ease. Uh, in fact, Dogen uh, speaks in this of it is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. 
that's his expression of this world, but that is a very minimal expression of this world. And why I think it's important is that we, if we um, do this meditation properly in this way that Dogen's suggesting, really get through into this exploration, um, then we can uh, bring about great discovery and um, about how, how we can improve uh, the world, the universe. Now, we're doing that, actually, already, and um, a lot has been discovered in the last hundred years. Huge things have been discovered in the last hundred years, last hundred years. And that this will continue. And I like to say, really, it's because of meditation that, that these discoveries are made. This is uh, difficult to prove. <laughs> but I think it's really from... Um, that the ideas, the creativity, and the infinite possibilities, these come up, <clears throat> they, they can actually come up to us in our sitting. <clears throat> and they may not come up to us individually, because we're not necessarily the ones who are going to be able to express it. But because of this oneness, it comes up in other ways, in other scientists. You know, maybe it's Einstein, you know, or maybe it's Stephen Hawking, but it's coming up. Um, wherever it's appropriate. But it's through our combined efforts that this happens, and this meditation is enabling, is energizing, is... Um, I, I talked at the very beginning about energy, but this is a... this way is a kind of energy, and it's, it's how we can help it to... Um, kind of... the direction it goes, we can help, I, I believe. So um, what, so what? Good question, so what? Um, I've spoken for far too long. I just want to say thank you for listening and um, to say that uh, I hope you will continue with your meditation or start it if you haven't and to um, discover for yourselves, this is a personal journey. Um, Dogen has a beautiful description of um, us being like fish underwater and we can we've got the whole ocean to explore we don't have to uh, go anywhere and we can just stay in one little patch or we can explore the whole of this ocean and go on and on and on infinitely in it and this is how this was how he sort of felt about meditate the world of meditation you can stay exactly where you are and it's fine, or you can explore and expand your horizons in the ocean. And this is um, something that I don't think people really think about, really. It's they, they work on it for their own benefit, their own peace of mind. It brings a lot of benefits. Uh, meditation helps us to be calm and relaxed and uh, all of these things, and that's all good. But I'm just saying that meditation, Dogen's meditation, is a far um, bigger scale possibility for you to, and it, anybody can do it. It's not, um, you don't have to be in any way special. You can, everybody can do it. And as you do it, you're helping yourself, and of course you're helping Stephen Hawking's and 
Einstein and whoever else. So it's a complete win-win situation. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. It was really just a simple question uh, of how long the sitting zazen is. I've read some of Adyashanti and a few other Buddhist and Zen teachers, and it isn't just two hours of uh, half, two half-hour meditations. They tend to be for many, many hours, and they're very stiff discipline. So although it seems it's a meditation for everyone, to reach those treasures and that depth of experience in meditation, could you say something about um, the amount of time that the students... <laughs> um, yes, um, it's, that's a good question. Just a general concept yes. to reflect on that. Well, if you start with um, uh, 25 minutes each day, that's a good start. 25 minutes sitting. And the strange thing is that as you sit, uh, you kind of get drawn into wanting to do more. And uh, if you do 25 minutes and then have five minutes sort of um, resting, maybe walking around the room, and then sit for another 25 minutes, uh, that's worth twice, more than twice, two sits really. Um, because you get a lot deeper in the second sit. And if you do, uh, basically that's an hour a day to start, you know, after you've managed 25 minutes a day and then go up to an hour a day, um, that's really good basic sitting. Um, and then you need to think about going on a retreat where you sit for two or three days. Uh, and you would sit typically then in um, three lots of 25 minutes, maybe four times a day or five times a day. So that's a lot more in that period of two to three days. And then <coughs> if you can manage that and you're okay with that, well, which most people are, then you'd go on a longer five or six day retreat um, and come to do those regularly, maybe twice a year. And then the next stage after that is to do an even longer retreat. Yeah, I thought this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, for, uh, I've been doing a lot of four week retreats, and I think that's a good time because um, uh, you, it's, uh, having done a lot of six-day retreats, um, you uh, get to a certain point and then it's sort of, uh, that seems to be the point you always get to each time. Um, and then if you go on a longer retreat, after 15, it seems to be, the pattern seems to be after 15 days, 15 to 21 days, you get to a different level in your sitting. And you could say it could be a 21-day retreat, but the thing is that people sort of see the end coming a week before they get there, usually. <laughs> so that's why it's four weeks. So you, you have the best, the period in the four weeks of, of greatest uh, intensity is 15 to 21 days. And that, that seems to be, to work with most people. Uh, these are all lay people, yeah. um, not people who are professional monks or nuns. 
Um, <clears throat> so that seems to be really good. Uh, I've also done 90 days, but that's a really long time and very mm. difficult to fit into people's schedules. Mm. Do you have to, you're starting to become professional then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have to, that's the thing. You don't, really don't have to. And once you get, um, so I think if you do a few three to four weeks, you reach a different level of, of fitting, which then when you go back to doing an hour a day, um, you're at a much deeper level straight away than you would be before you did the three weeks it was just something you were saying towards the end about you know the, the kind of treasure trove and, and wishing to get to this place and, and also though there's the sense of emptiness and not wishing to actually achieve anything and how do you kind of keep Reconcile. that balance yeah between not wishing to achieve anything and wishing to get somewhere well it's uh, really um, contradictory. You have to um, not wish anything. <clears throat> Let go of everything. Um, it's completely opposite to all your training. So your training is you do something very, you know, assiduously and conscientiously, and if you keep going at it, you'll get what you want. This is the opposite. You mustn't do anything <laughs> to get there, um, except just sitting with non-thinking. Um, and you, by letting go of any sense of self, any sense of other, you, by letting, by that letting go, you suddenly fall into, fall through the back of the cupboard. So it's not, it's not intentional. But at the same time you're saying the more you do it, the better you get at it. Well, that's for getting this, um, uh, at a certain point you find this emptiness quite easily. But then it sort of sticks with this emptiness, and you can have sort of periods which are quite dry, like you know the famous dark night sort of thing, where um, I was hearing from somebody just recently who who's a, a nun actually who um, sits a lot, and she'd had two years of kind of dark night where her sitting was awful. You know, she thought it was terrible, she did, hated it, she had to force herself to do it, etc. And um, that <coughs> can happen, definitely that can happen, but um, she eventually per persevered because she's a tough lady. And eventually she broke through this um, emptiness, this just empty nothingness, uh, and started feeling this <coughs> sense of oneness and constant change and infinite possibilities and creativity coming up. And then she was, um, it was better for her to sit and it was easier straight away to get into that. So it's like, um, it is a bit like the skiing. If you've done it, if you do a lot of it at one point, you never really forget, or riding a bike. Um, it's hard to say how you keep your balance on a bike. If you start thinking about it, you probably fall off the bike. But if you just ride the bike without thinking about it, you sort of get the uh, feel, and you don't forget that. 
but he hasn't written a line for a while. But anyway, hopefully he's open. <laughs> but it's like that. So um, once you get to the point where your sitting is going pretty well, then if you extend it and do longer periods, it get, does get better, a lot better. But I think, again, it's like everything. It's always a bit different for each person. So go with what you feel is best, really. Um, and and that, that's something that Dogen was very keen on, was that you should have a, a teacher. Uh, ideally, you should have a meditation teacher, um, which was easy for a monk to say. But, but he, was, he, he taught lay people, and uh, he was also very keen on teaching lay women as well as lay men. So he was, um, you know, he was very equal in that. And um, if you have a meditation teacher, somebody who you can talk, doesn't matter, somebody you get on with, if you have a meditation teacher who you can sort of sound out, uh, you know, with them how you're doing, that helps a lot. In fact, Dogen said it's essential, which he's probably right about, really. If you're doing it seriously, you need to have a, a meditation teacher. Not, not really a teacher, a guide, meditation guide. Are there any guidance on meditation individually or group or is, can you do both or you can definitely do both um, meditation on your own is much harder than meditation in a group because meditation in a group you get a sort of um, uh, energy that's going from coming up in the whole group and that's why a retreat's a good thing to do um, with other people you can because you're all doing it together, it really makes it much easier and more intense. When you're on your own, it is harder. Um, so not so many people will be uh, go on a, go to a hermitage and sit there for a long time. But that is okay to do too. But you really need other people. I haven't done that. I've done. Um, I've been to a retreat center on my own, but there were other people sitting there as well, different people, and uh, that helped me a lot. Even though I wasn't talking to them, it was just their sitting with together was good. So these retreats, they're not silent retreats? They? Yeah, they are silent retreats. Oh. They are silent retreats. They don't have to be silent when you're not sitting. They have to be silent when you're sitting. Oh, okay. But sometimes you can talk in meals. Some people just sit uh, in silence and then when they have their meals together they talk. But it does interrupt the silence that you get into. A lot of it is this developing this silence. Because we do talk a lot, as you've just noticed. <laughs> I'm talking all the time. But, um, yeah.
tired after do, a long day. And do on. you use the mantra, move, then, when you're sitting, or do you use your breath? Or? You use, um, in Zen we use mu, yes, as uh, on the out-breath. And it's, it, uh, initially it starts as a concentration technique in order to not be thinking. You just put mu on the out-breath, breathe mu on the out-breath. Um, but over time, it becomes um, a way of entering into this world that Dogen's talking about. And I guess that would be the same with Maranatha as well. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really ever used Maranatha, but I know um, somebody who used the Jesus prayer, and that worked very well, and that worked in the same way. But eventually, they went from the Jesus prayer it's just very simple move, you know, it's not a, yeah. and it's not a mantra in the sense of being holy. It actually means, it's Japanese for nothing. Huh? So it means, not, you know, nothing, nothing. So it's, um, it's not a, it's not a, a mantra in the <coughs> Hindu sense, yeah, it's like on yeah. or, Yeah, but in a way, it's it, it's nothingness brings you to Om, ironically. So. Do you pronounce it? You, you see what I mean when you when you are saying the mantra? Mm, you, no, you don't pronounce it, but you think it more. You're just aware of it. It's very difficult start with with new because it sort of um, is an irritant it irritates your mind you know why is this um, I don't want to be doing this new I want to be thinking about the shopping or whatever it is so to start with it's a, a bit annoying but gradually it becomes your mind allows it to just continue on the outbreath but you're not thinking of the meaning of nothing and you're not um, enunciating new just it, it sort of blends with your breath, your out breath. So you breathe in, nothing, and then in the out breath. When I do the Maranatha, it helps, I think. I think I am pronouncing it. I mean, the, the, the problem with my mind is my mind is so self-tendently busy. Yes. But then I get into kind of dialogue. Uh, about the levels of imagination that I am putting into trying to pronounce it but not kind of thinking of the meaning and then it's, it's just almost impossible to kind of exactly. stop this kind of layers of uh, semantics or whatever that I kind of debate about, you know, it's, it's kind of, then maybe the pronouncing is sort of the kind of imagining the sound or it's, it's more calming or less kind of convoluted than if I don't pronounce it. You see what I mean? Yes, I do, I do. And that's very, that's very normal. Um, that's very normal. So it has to become, a, it's, it, it has to become something that you don't think about anymore. Uh, so then, then the downside of that is that you're doing Maranatha or move. But at the same time, you're having thinking thoughts. You know, that's amazing. You can, so you're dual tracking with your mind. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it's very clever, the mind. It'll, it'll find ways of, of getting itself into the picture. You know, it's, um, it's a very clever piece of... I mean, we naturally think all the time, don't we, with, that we're trained to think. So non-thinking is very hard. That's the practice to discover how to do that. And probably children would be much better at easy, find it very easy. Um, and I can't remember. <coughs> I remember reading books when I was, a, you know, I don't know, five or six, where everybody was always thinking. So and so thought this. I think, well, I never think. Why is it that they're always thinking in these books? No. Well, uh, well, that's true, and now, now I'm trying to get back to that. <laughs> but yes, so children kind of have that openness in their mind, in their thinking mind. They're not thinking, and that's why they come up with spontaneous, wonder, wonderful comments and observations. It just comes up out of the blue. So they're good teachers. It's quite a it's quite impact on this. Is it a raising of consciousness in that sense? Of uh, it's a raising of consciousness of this oneness. <clears throat> and um, it can be that you can actually have um, this communication. It can, a lot of people experience this and don't quite know how to talk about it or describe it. But you can have a thought which another person has the same, exactly the same thought. Um, in the, the nearest scientific expression of this would be um, quantum entanglement, they describe it, where uh, something, that, this is in particle physics, it actually proves that if something happens, say, here, to a particle here in Middleton Square, that um, very same um, activity or event that happens to that particle will happen to another particle the other side of you know, the earth. And this is, um, so that, that's a sort of analogy, but it's not like that, but it is that you can actually know what somebody else is thinking and you can actually affect what somebody else is thinking, but not um, deliberately. It's just something that you can you can know sometimes. I'm sure you you've probably had experiences where you know you suddenly have been worried about so and so, and then you ring them up and you and you find out when you ring them that something just happened to them. That it's that kind of um, knowing. So we we are very interconnected, much more than we realise. I mean, 100% more than we realise because we think we're all. This is a problem with relying totally on our six senses. So it's really letting the the six senses are wonderful, but they're a limiting a limiting factor as well as a um, as vital for our survival. And if we can go beyond, leaping beyond the barriers of of our six senses, 
realizing that there is this one essence that's not apart from us, that runs through us all. Uh, again, in another uh, physics analogy, it would be dark energy, which we can't find or see, or that is 99% of the universe is, nine, is dark energy. But it's not that's not what it is, but it's that's another example of how we are discovering this possibility <clears throat> of what's beyond us but goes through us. Passes through us. And it's really sensing that. And you're affecting what happens all around the world, actually not just now, but through time as well, throughout time. Um, but it does, um, it has big implications for things like that are going on in Syria or North Korea or the Caribbean, you know, wherever there's. So, sense of helping. It's not something you can use, that's the thing that's important to remember, you can't, this isn't something you can, um, you know, we all always are thinking, how can we use this, but it's, it, that, and then it's gone, and, yeah, exactly, exactly. Can I ask you about trust? Because in a way, it seems to me that so much of what you're saying really is about us trusting. Because we don't see, I mean, if we look at Syria, if we look at what's happening there, if we look at the refugee crisis, it seems to be getting worse. So actually to, to say that our meditation in some ways actually alleviates that condition for certain people, do we have to say that we, we trust that it does? That, but, to try and say that there's actually evidence. We can, I mean, I know they say they've actually done some experiments to say that prayer works. They say they've actually some scientific experiments. I don't know exactly what they are. But I'm just saying, it seems to me trust is really vital in a sense, that you're kind of saying that you're doing it with understanding. We don't have a clue in a sense how it works, or do we? We just have to say that we trust in the energy that we hopefully that it emanates from us, and in actual fact, it, it, in some ways it affects. But I don't, I don't know how we know, and I don't know how you differentiate between bad and good energy. All of those things, once you try and begin to deconstruct it, if you like, it seems to me it becomes much more about trusting that that's what's happening. You're absolutely, absolutely right. You do have to trust. You, definitely you have to trust. And um, it's interestingly, um, one of the aspects which I haven't really looked at too much of Dogen 
is that <clears throat> the practice of meditation traditionally was a way of coming to enlightenment so that you could see clearly for yourself what, how the reality works and not have to trust. But Dogen said that isn't the purpose of meditation. The purpose of meditation is itself realization, it is enlightenment. So even though you don't know when you're sitting necessarily that you are enlightened, you are in fact enlightened. And that takes a bit of trust, doesn't it? And so it's because you're, you're emanating this kind of uh, energy or light of enlightenment without realizing it necessarily. Some do, some, most don't. And that is what's um, helping you know, helping people who are in suffering. But you have to trust that that is what's happening. Most people will have to trust, I think that's true. If you cannot trust. Well, then you're, then you cannot trust because you're feeling separation. And this is what's causing the suffering. Um, it's, a, it's difficult because you feel separation and you suffer um, and you can't feel this oneness because you don't trust so you continue suffering so in a way you're in the hands of the people who are meditating and trusting but that, that, that will win through in the end that <laughs> Because, because of this first principle that the way is originally perfect and all-pervading, it's no, you're completely included. Um, so you may not realize it, but you are completely included. And if you can, you know, if you can let go of the separation, the feeling of separation, which is totally um, <clears throat> natural because it comes up, we need it, a feeling of separation, otherwise we would, uh, you know, walk under the bus thinking, well, the bus is me and it's no problem, <laughs> but that would be no good. So you have to have separation, but it's getting beyond that, it's, it's realizing that's only a part of the story. I think I, uh, it, I think it would. I haven't uh, myself really um, focused on what's happening in Syria in the sense that you might think, which might be looking into separation and hate um, and fear into what we might call the darker side because there isn't a dark side really in this reality. What comes up all the time is the love and the peace. And that is what is really there to help, the love and the peace, so that, and hope, possibly for Syria it's hope. 
but it's, it's not, unfortunately, you want to direct it, but you can't direct it. You can't, it, you, it's not a, um, a laser that you can target on things. Anyway, in, in my experience, maybe it can be, maybe Dogen was able to do that. It would be good if one could, but maybe it wouldn't because we'd have terrible power. This is the thing that. That would be a good idea. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Do you think any They said after Dogen, I think it's that idea of the palm attaining Yes. Funny enough, they're about the same time. I think they're the 1200s, so similar time, the observing pictures. And that's interesting too because there are uh, the observing pictures are a sort of um, eight or ten pictures that were drawn to represent a process of starting to look for this reality and finding it. Um, and the, the eight pictures end with this complete circle of emptiness, living in this emptiness. Uh, and then another Zen master added these two to make ten. And one of them was um, uh, discovering this beautiful world, nature. And the final one was going to, into the marketplace to express it. And these last two are the sort of, are really the Dogen, funny enough. It's interesting you say that, but coming at the same similar time as Dogen. As a Dogen extension that you have to go beyond emptiness to um, discover this oneness and constant change. And then you have to express it in your daily living in the marketplace. to harmonizing or finding it, discovering and then harmonizing with the ox. Uh, but not controlling, you think it's, it's no, that's interesting that you, uh, there is an element, isn't there, in the way they're done, they seem as though they're with a stick, you're trying to control the ox. And that's a bit of a, I wouldn't say that was really accurate. But it was a sort of metaphor and allegory, but so maybe that's, well, that's a good point. I mean, I just thought of that when you were talking about material and yeah. the people did not like to control that off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Speaking as a sort of ancient parish priest who discovered quite early on you can't fix anything, but you can be quiet among your people. 
things get fixed around you somehow. Does exactly. that does that ring? But I spend a lot of time in silence. Yes, holding the phone somehow. That's exactly. That's it. That's it. Good. Good. Yes, that's open to anyone. Is it every, it's every Tuesday except the first Tuesday in the month when it's at um, another place. It's at um, St. James's, um, St. James's Piccadilly, yeah. Um, but otherwise it's Tuesdays here. That's um, six weeks. I'm looking at Elizabeth because she's one of our main organizers. We do, we do. Once a month we do an afternoon, yeah. So that's two to eight. Yeah. Yes, you don't have to come for the whole time. It's, you can come for... <laughs> yeah, you can definitely dip your toes. You get better uh, able to sit for longer easily. Then you also have to take this posture when you need Yes, I'm not a very good example of that because I sit very badly. <laughs> but um, yes, we do teach that, definitely, because it's essential to be comfortable. Um, in, in the Fukanta Zenji, Dogen says you should sit in the cross-leg lotus position. But uh, I didn't mention that, but in fact, you don't have to. You have to just be in a comfortable position where you can, um, A, stay awake, and um, B, be relaxed. So it's not, um, in, in Dogen's day, you, were, you, you didn't have chairs. You sat on the floor, and your uh, cross-leg position was natural. So it was sitting just normal sitting for, for Dogen and uh, but for us now we Westerners um, we, we like sitting on chairs so chairs you can sit on a chair and it's perfectly okay in meditation I have to say that if you can sit on the ground on the cushion it's it feels the most solid but sitting on a chair is absolutely okay and yeah so that is fine to do that Exactly. You become the sound as, as you listen. 
So that was a vital piece of knowledge I didn't have. But that's good. That's me. Well, <clears throat> Henry was saying that you um, start off with saying switching into the sutras now. But uh, you, you repeat that, and then you start, naturally, you start to listen to what you've said. So you go into a different consciousness level, really. And then you, after that, you naturally just become just the sound itself. And that's the sort of natural progression. And when you become the sound, you've forgotten yourself, and you've forgotten everything else. So that's all there is. So, yeah. Almost, I think meditation is always heading towards the same goal, but you know, whichever sort you're looking at. But um, Dogen pushed it to you know another level, I think, by really going into this, um, you know, falling through the wardrobe. 